0: in the auditorium. We're taking our Bibles. We're headed to Matthew chapter 26. While we are headed to Matthew 26, we want to talk about the life of Christ, continue that story and what's happening. Let's do a little bit of talking, a little bit of yammering about Vacation Bible School. We just wrapped it up. Here's a question for you. What are some of the VBS themes that we have done? I'm checking your memories. Let's see what you remember. What type of VBS themes have we done in the past? We've done the jungle. What would you say? Space, underwater. Remember any others that we've done? The Christmas. Christmas is there, absolutely. Absolutely. We've done a variety of them. These are not in any order, but these are some of the things that we've done in the last few years. And somebody asked me this week, who comes up with these ideas? I tell you what happens. Pastor Tony comes up with the themes. And this week, he came up with the next five years themes. And he says, I know what I'm going to do next year. I'll guarantee it'll change between now and next year. In fact, it almost changed from Christmas last week. Um, So I don't know where he gets this idea of changing his mind and running through all these things. But somewhere he picked it up. Name parts of the VBS that the kids really like. Gospel store has got to be up there. Cookie time. Screaming. Screaming. Why, could you hear them at your workplace? Yeah. Yeah, okay, they were loud. They were loud. Several, several things the games, the cookies, the gospel store, Tony's Bible lessons, the bounce houses, tractor rides, missionary stories, saying verses, and then we do a daily story at the end of it that uh, I'll complete this evening. Do, what do we need a lot of volunteers to help with during VBS? Crowd control. Okay. Verse hearers is the big one. Uh, what's that? Leaders, first aid. You know what? This year we have we had no instances other than somebody fall, but we had no instances of lice. That's a really good one that we haven't had, and we didn't have to send anybody home the last two or three years. So that's really good. Nobody punched each other. That's really been that's been uh, exciting to get rid of those. Other volunteers are needed for what's that? I said, and that was just the leaders. That was just the leaders. Yeah, (laughs) that wasn't the kids. Okay, what else do we need volunteers for? Look up here. what would that say suggest? Yeah. decorating, doing those types of things. So we need people listening to verses, setting up the stage, making the cookies, working as leaders, nursery, preschool helpers for those kids. We need people at the parents' night to help out with the carnival. This is a plug. We also need people to tear down on the Monday morning at 9 a.m. So if you're able to give us a hand, we'd appreciate it. just show up. We could use whoever is able to walk and tear things apart. Why do we set up the stage the way we do? I've been asked this question by several times. In fact, over the years the preacher boys more than anybody else, say to me, why do we bother going through all this effort? Yeah, it's just a vacation Bible school. Why do you think we do this? Because we have nothing else to do is not up there. Okay, that is not up there. Get the kids excited? Recognition of it? I'll give you the reasons that would... Okay. Make, make it visually fun and exciting for the kids. And that's a reality. Set up the week before to create enthusiasm. We do it to advertise our VBS, which it does. It takes too long. We used to do this stuff on Sunday afternoon. Okay, We used to set it up. That stopped a number of years ago because some of us got older. Um, it usually parallels parts of the VBS story to show, and this is critical, This is in our mindset. And as people come to our church, as visitors come to our church, as parents come this evening, we want them to understand that we do put effort into kids' ministries. That kids' ministries are important. If you had youngsters, would you want to be in a church that the kids' ministries get attention And that's critical. That's really critical. And to test your ability to focus during Sunday services. That's that's what happens for you. Here we go. Why do we do a parents night? Why did we do what we do tonight where we invite the parents back? To share the gospel. Okay. Any other reasons? Okay. Yeah. It really comes down to another opportunity to share. Get on church people. By the way, is it important sometimes to just get people into a building of a church? To break down, the, It really does, to break down a barrier, uh, to uh, thank the parents. We, we really believe this, that we want to thank the parents for letting us have their kids during the morning. I mean, you, you might say a lot of people just soon get rid of them. I don't think that's the general tenor. A lot of people are going to be careful of where their kids go, and so they've honored us by letting their kids come to show unchurched. This is really important in my mind. To show unchurched people who may come tonight that you folk are friendly. Well, that's not going to happen unless you're going to act on it as well, but typically you do. To make it easier for the callers who now will follow up, some were yesterday, some will be this week, but to follow up, it gives us an opportunity that, hey, you were here, we had an opportunity to show the parents what we taught the kids. We are not ashamed of what we're teaching as far as Bible. In fact, when the kids make decisions, and this week we had 16 kids profess Christ as Savior, a number of others had come forward, but our workers were so good, they didn't talk and didn't press. But one of the things we do is we have this little Little brochure that gives the Bible verses plan of salvation. We have the kids, you know, we put their names in we put it in the bag and send it home. We want the parents to know what we're talking about and they see very upfront. And last reason that we do the parents tonight is I have such a long story that it takes another time to teach it. For some reason, I don't get things done in the appropriate time. What kind of questions do kids ask during VBS? Here's the things we were asked this year. Is that nutcracker real? And the answer is yes, okay, it is. Did the snowman, why, you know, why did the snowman melt? When we turn off the machine, the snowman melts and the kids are all flustered. You know, what happened to the snowman? Did somebody poke a hole in it, we turned off the fan. Um, can, if this question was asked more than any other question. Can we eat all these cookies that are up here on stage, okay? And it wasn't just the kids that asked that, okay? It was some of the leaders, and if you really want stale, soggy cookies that have been there all week in humidity, help yourself after tonight. Oh, or tomorrow morning when you come to clean up. You can have them then. Okay. Why don't we do this every week? Okay? That gets asked a lot. Is this what church is like when I come on Sunday? Okay? So we invite people to come back. These kids are hyped up. I, I got to tell you, I, I feel for the kids who come as visitors and then they come the week, two weeks after VBS. What a letdown. Okay, compared to what we would typically have. Can I keep coming? If I was asked this week, I was uh, in a business place the earlier this uh, the first part of this week and this woman who doesn't know me from Adam I didn't think, she said, aren't you so and so? I say, yes I am. And she says, I remember you and I said, I'm really sorry. I don't remember, did we meet someplace? She says, I came my son used to come to your VB, VBS I said, oh really? I said, you said used to. He said, he's 15. But every time we drive by the church, he says, I wonder if they could do anything for the teens. And so we gave an opportunity to talk a little bit. But she said, he loved your VBS. In fact, she said, I would come from work at lunch to pick him up, and I'd come a few minutes early to hear what's going on, to hear the kids singing. And the other lady working in this business office came over and says, oh, you're the church over here in such and such place that has the VBS. And I said, yeah. She said, my nephew this past week is so upset that he can't come to the VBS. His parents signed him up to go to Boy Scout camp. And then he found out Boy Scout Camp and your VBS are the same time, and he's trying to talk his parents out of letting him out of Boy Scout Camp and come to your VBS, because this is his last year he can go to your VBS. Um, and so, um, you know, we get asked these questions. What is the theme for next year? I've heard 10 already from Tony. Okay, so I'm not sure which one it's going to be. And will I get cookies when I come to church? We get asked that a lot. What do the kids, when do the kids get really loud during VBS? Singing hallelujah praise the Lord. 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 Praise the Lord. Um, we, we were cruel this week. Tony said, I don't think people understand how loud it is this direction. So one day we had all the verse hearers come up on the platform. It was the morning that we had 248 kids. This room it rocks, okay, when they are singing. It is, and it is amazing. And several of the verse here that came up, who right after it was done we told them to go and listen to the kids. Yeah, right? They're going to be able to. It's loud. It is really loud when they get going. Now, let's do something that's biblical. Okay? Let's let's jump into Matthew 26. and We're going to be talking about trials. Okay? Now, we've talked about VBS. Now, let's talk about legal things. Okay? Legal things. According to Jewish law, I want you to think with me for a moment. Jesus is going to, we're going to be talking about his trials. What is true and what is false here? According to Jewish law, the Jews were allowed to execute someone for such crime as murder, adultery, and blasphemy. True or false? This is in Bible in the days of Jesus. Were they allowed to execute people for these specific crimes? No. They were not allowed to execute anyone at all. The Romans took away that that um, uh, ability, took away that, that uh, legal right. They couldn't do it at all. The Jews could not hold a trial at night dealing with capital cases, uh, cases that were so serious that it would involve execution. Is that a true or a falsehood? Okay, that is true, okay? Jesus, most of his trials done by the Jews were done during the night. They were illegal. They were not supposed to be meeting. Jewish trials could be held in the private residence of the high priest. That is false. They could not hold the Jewish trials in the private quarters, but if you go in Matthew 26 and 27, the first Jewish trials that are held are in private residences, the trials of Jesus. Jewish law prohibited condemning a man to death the very same day that his trial began. That is true. Jewish law is because the seriousness of taking a man's life, they have to, if they start a trial, they have to go at least two days. By the way, and they have to be consecutive. That meant that according to Jewish law, yeah, according to Jewish law they could not have a trial held on what days? Couldn't be a feast day or it couldn't be, if they have to have at least two days couldn't be held on a day before a feast, on a Friday. Okay, it was against their law. Do you think the, the trials of Jesus were screwy? Okay, In that day, go a little bit further. In that day a prisoner could be made to testify against himself. That's false. Jewish law you could plead the fifth or you could not be forced to testify. That explains part of the reason. What did Jesus often do during the trial? It says he said not a word. Why? They're asking him to testify against himself. He didn't have to answer. It wasn't that he was being stubborn. He was following Jewish law, okay? A prisoner had no rights. They could be beaten freely. That's false. Jewish law, under Jewish law, they could not strike a prisoner during a trial and only any kind of inflicting, any type of brutality, any type of hitting them, whipping them, anything of that course could only be given when If the person was now sentenced to that type of treatment, did they buffet Jesus? Did they strike Jesus? Did they beat him? All of it was against their laws. If witnesses contradicted one another in a case, it was automatically thrown out of court. That is true by Jewish jurisprudence. If, If you had two witnesses, no matter what the situation, if two witnesses contradicted, the whole case was thrown out. Do you remember what happens during the trial of Jesus? They cannot agree on their testimony. The temple could not accept blood money bribery money anything like that as part of their offering that is true. The priests if they knew that blood money or bribery was or something money gotten in an unethical fashion they could not accept it as part of someone's offering. By the way who's, where does that play in? Judas tries to give back the money and they say it's against our law to accept the money. Why? It was blood money. He was was paid to betray Jesus. They by law could not accept it. You know the irony of that whole thing? That's the same people who paid the money. Yeah, yeah. So the whole thing, everything around this trial and the arrest and the trial and every it is so, it is what is the purpose of their trial then? If you look at all this and they're violating their law what was their goal? Yeah, yeah. It was all about we want to, we just need to go through some type of, of outward appearance of trying Jesus. But he was tried before it even started. They were going to kill him before it even started. So there, it's not a trial. And there's six of them. They hold six different trials for Jesus, both the the religious as well as the civil trials. And do you remember what Pilate keeps on saying? I find no fault in this man. Okay? They just, and so it just, and. It's an amazing situation how it happens. So let's talk about it. We're talking about the Thursday evening. What happens that night before Jesus is crucified? It's Thursday night he has the Passover supper. Then what he does is he has his high priestly prayer. He goes into Gethsemane and prays. When they're in Gethsemane, at the very end of his prayer time, which could take several hours, we know that he prayed an hour and then came back, prayed an hour, came back, prayed an hour and came back. If that reference, praying in an hour, is to the 60-minute concept. So it's, we're talking middle of the morning. Early morning hours. They come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know the story that Jesus, during his prayer time, was distraught. He's sweating blood. He says that he is anguishing and great, you know, great. Uh, um, in great agony. Okay, let's leave it that way. He comes when he's finishing his three hours of prayers. He's totally different. He is now composed. He is strengthened. He meets the soldiers at the gate, and exactly what takes place first, Judas' kiss, or the soldiers saying, we come to seek Jesus. I'm not sure which one is first. Um, and maybe some of you have better insight than than the rest of us, but uh, we don't know the exact sequence. And when he says to the soldiers, say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he, they do what? They all fall down. They collapse. Okay, and so uh, they come, and Jesus is showing his own power at that moment that they aren't, they aren't in control. He is. And so Judas identifies, you know, and says, I'll give a kiss. That way you know which one it is. And we said there's multiple reasons betrayal, trying to throw the, the, the disciples of Jesus off guard, throw Jesus off guard, or it's, you know, in, uh, in the darkness of this garden. If there's any moonlight, you're under trees, you've got, you got torches going. Whatever his reasons for doing it. Peter responds and he's going to defend Jesus, even though Jesus has put up your sword. Because several ask him, they, it's as we ended up last week, they ask should we take out swords? And he says put them up. But what Peter doesn't, Peter impulsively attacks Malchus who is one of the high priest's servants and cuts off his ear. He misses his head and cuts off his ear. Jesus reattaches the ear puts it back and he stops Peter. And then he makes these comments. And this is where we stopped last time. Verse 52. 26 of Matthew chapter 26 verse 52. Jesus said put up again your sword into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Think thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? He gives Peter three reasons. Three reasons why you don't defend me at this point, Uh, even though even though Peter should have heard in the prayer, "You know, not my will, but thine be done." You know, and should have understood some of this. But the reasons were were threefold. If violence destroys those who use the violence, now that's a life principle, and it's very clear: if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And by the way, did Christians in history ever try to promote Christianity via the sword? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Christians are guilty of uh, that terrorism that, was, that we find reprehensible today by other religious groups. So violence destroys those who use it. He basically says I could, if I wanted to, I can get all the defense I need from angels who could, by the way, one angel took out 185,000 soldiers in one night in Second, Chron- uh, Second Chronicles 32. So it's not like Jesus needs Peter to stand up for him. God could have done it if God wanted. And he's basically saying this is the way scriptures has to be fulfilled. It must be. I must die, bury, and resurrect. And he's already had Peter's conversation with him. Peter already told him weeks before don't go to Jerusalem. You cannot go to Jerusalem. After Jesus said I go to Jerusalem and I will die, I'll be mistreated and then I'll rise again. And Jesus had turned to Peter in that conversation and said get thee behind me Satan. Okay, and so Peter already knows that Jesus is determined to go and fulfill the scriptures that prophesy he must die, but he just doesn't want to accept it. He's in a denial phase. And so Jesus is making it very clear. Then what happens is this. Jesus is bound. As we read the story and continue on, it's, it goes that, that Jesus made comments in verses 55, 56. We looked at that already. But it says In verse 56, the the last half of the verse, then all the disciples forsook him and fled and they led him, uh, they that had laid hold on Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest. And so what you have is all the disciples depart except for Mark. Mark tells the story of a young man who stays around and the soldiers, excuse me here Jim, the soldiers grab his outer cloak and he struggles to get away to the point that not only does he get out of his outer cloak, basically that's his, you know, his house coat and he's got nothing else on. And he runs away naked. Now the question is who's that young man? Most people assume it's John Mark because Mark records it. Mark, John Mark would be a young man. We get into the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts. His mother is involved with ministry and with his home and some conclude that maybe it was even his home where the meal was held. We don't know any more than that. So the sur- uh, it's surmised that Mark is the one. John Mark or Mark, the one who writes the gospel Mark, is the one who is the young man that flees away. But the point is these gospel writers don't shy away from portraying the disciples for what they are and what they did. That they had these moments where they took off and they left. And so you have the account that Jesus, in this, and this is the part that amazes me, the Lord in in the midst of this arrest, knowing what is ahead, knowing what's going to happen, and knowing how people have betrayed him, knowing his own disciples will leave, knowing all that, his own courage. Contrast that to his enemies who come by night. They come because they're afraid of who? Why do they send the soldiers? Because they're afraid of all the crowds and that this is going to be an up, up, up popular move. But Jesus, and I think the writers of the Gospels portray that. They keep on saying that these leaders are afraid of the crowds, afraid of the crowds, afraid of the crowds. Why? They want us to understand our Lord is not afraid. He's a courageous individual, his control of the situation, the soldiers falling down, not needing Peter's help his words indicate self-control, no panic um, he's persuading them to release the disciples, his absolute control. the other thing is his compassion towards Malchus in that he heals him these people who is Malchus who is a part of the crowd, and most of all Jesus's commitment it just it is, it is just absolutely challenging and encouraging to see this from our Lord how dedicated he is to do the Father's will for your and my benefit. And so Jesus portrays all this and he moves into it. Let's just make some conclusions and get into what happens with the trials. From Peter's example we we would want to make this conclusion. We disciples often want to fight for the cause of Christ via using conventional methods. We can do that even in, in our spiritual fights. We use conventional methods and it's not always done that way. Here's what we're getting at. Mere zeal does not always take the wisest measures. Just because somebody is zealous doesn't make, mean what they're doing is the best. And you and I need to understand that just because somebody is bold and brazen that doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing the best and the wisest. Could we be bold and brazen and really do damage to the cause of Christ? Be, be our boldness. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Bold and brazen and in your face. Westboro Baptist Church. Yes? You know who I mean? the ones who picket the funerals, who say that America is damned for this, that, the other thing, who in their bold and brazen statements, they're zealous, but is their zeal wise? Does it do more damage to the cause of Christ? It does. It does. And Peter, you and I I need to remember that. That sometimes in our admiration for bold and brazen, we need to temper it and say, okay, there should be boldness with the gospel, but let's make sure that our boldness is presenting the gospel and not hurting the gospel <clears throat> the way it's done. Disciples who fail to pray will also falter in discernment and wisdom. We know that by personal experience. We see it by Peter. That if we fail to pray, we're not going to be discerning. Usually it's much easier this, this, think with me on this. Usually it's much easier to take some course of action than to embrace and endure quiet affliction. Do you think that's true? In that regard? Would, if you and I were back there with Peter, what would be easier for us? To take some action with Peter or let them take away the Lord and let him go through his suffering? It's harder at times to remain quiet and submissive to that which is hard, to an ordeal, as opposed to taking some action to try to get out of the ordeal. And so we must learn to be self-controlled in all situations, self-controlled so that we are gracious and kind even to our enemies, self-controlled that we show courage and strength in the face of opposition and attacks, self-control that says we remain committed to God in any situation, self-control that stifles our fears and apprehensions to do God's will. That's tough. That's difficult. But that's what we're called to. That's the example of Jesus Christ in this passage that he is going to follow the Lord no matter what. We recognize that evil may have their upper hand for a while. Remember what Jesus had said when he's finished praying? (laughs) He says, their hour has come and so evil gets their hour. They're going to have the upper hand. They're going to do the trials. They're going to do the arrest. They're going to do the beatings. They're going to have the upper hand for a little bit. But he says in the end it's not going to work that way. And by the way, do we think that, do you think that at this era where we live in, does it seem like evil has the upper hand at times? Yeah, yeah. But in the end we know what's going to happen. Okay, the victor, the conqueror will set things right. We should not get discouraged or defeated during those times when evil appears to have the upper hand. Okay, Jesus gives that demonstration. While we trust the Lord, we must also make some practical provisions and plans. We talked about what he had told the disciples is if you don't have your knapsack, if you don't have your coin bag, if you don't have a sword, go get them now. While I was with you, you had everything, but now that I'm leaving, you're going to have to make some provisions. You're going to trust me, but you need to make some provisions. It takes real discernment to know what to do and how much to plan while trusting the Lord. Okay, the Lord's going to take care of me, but what do I do in that in that whole setting? Do not be caught up in someone's public displays of kindness and affection when in reality, they are not committed to following Christ. Who are we talking about in this whole account? Who's the one that had the public display of affection but was... Judas, Judas, okay. And that can happen in the in the group of disciples, like Jesus's disciples, in a group of disciples our size, could there be displays of affection and it really there is no no content of commitment. That's a possibility. <coughs> these observations. Need to examine your heart, just being in proximity to Christ and His followers does not mean you are a true disciple. Again, Judas. Having the right words and public gestures does not mean you are internally converted by Christ. Judas. Is there a genuine and consistent desire to follow Christ no matter what? Are you motivated to following Christ by what you get out of it? Can some people jump on the bandwagon of Christianity to pad their own pocketbooks? Yes. Yes. To become popular or get some power? Yes. And he said, Judas is a classic illustration. Make sure that we examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. Are you truly born again or are you just following the crowd of Christians you know? That's Judas. So what happens is Jesus goes on trial. The trials are recorded in all four gospels. John records some of the trials that are mostly the political trials that are done by the Romans, Pilate in particular, some of the others they blend them. Now the trials aren't necessarily put in chronological order in all the Gospels. So what we do is we compare the different Gospels and we try to say, okay, what is the sequence of events? Some of them give different aspects of different trials. Let's start with, math, uh, with John. John is giving us the first of the trials that takes place. And so in John chapter 8, 18. Now we just read in Matthew that they take him to the house of Caiaphas. That's not the first trial. John chapter 18 is the first phase. The very first one We go in John chapter 18 where we find out that what happens is in John 18 down in verse 13. It says they led him away to Annas first for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas which is the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for all the people. That was right after Lazarus was raised from the dead. What are we going to do? And so you see here They go to Annas's place. Now jump down to verse 24. In verse 24 now Annas had him sent bound unto Caiaphas. That's where Matthew 26 picks up. So let's just kind of do it in the chronological order. When Jesus is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes to Annas's house. Now just for your information, this is, this is not going to make any difference in your belief, but it's information to give you ideas of what's going on. Annas is called the high priest, but actually he isn't the sitting high priest. He's the high priest emeritus. Annas was from a family that was very, very wealthy. Several of his ancestors and several of his descendants. In fact, five of his sons become high priest... And so they are a family that is in power and in control. He was high priest from Jerusalem from 6 to 15 AD. He was taken out of control by the Romans because the Romans had too much flack arising because of his corruption. His corruption, Annas was the one who started this whole bazaar system. It's even called in Josephus' writings, Annas' bazaars. That is those marketplace, the money changers that Jesus kicked out. He's the guy who is in control of all that. He's the guy who controlled all the money in the temple. By the way if he's controlling the money then what does that tell you about the temple in total? He's the one. He's the one even though Caiaphas is now the high priest whoever's controlling the purse strings is controlling what's happening. And so that's why they go to Annas' house. It's a display of his political power, though he's not the sitting high priest. He's been, he was replaced by the Romans. <laughs> the Romans thought he was too corrupt. What does that tell you? Okay. And so just for your information, the high priest had to annually be confirmed by the Roman governor. Pontius Pilate would approve. This guy remains, this guy gets removed. And so the Romans were very invo- In fact, the Romans... Held, um, they held on to the high priest's robes. The, high, the, Roman, the Jewish high priest, they couldn't keep the robes. They would get it brought out for special festivals and feast days. They'd have to go to the Roman Pontius Pilate and get permission to take out the robes. So the Romans were, were keeping them under tabs to some degree. And in this time the high priest was confirmed. And so in 15 AD the Romans said, Annas you're out. You're, you're creating too many problems even amongst your own people because of your corruption. But he is still powerful. As I said, five of his sons, his son-in-law, Caiaphas is now sitting there. But they take, him, they take Jesus to Annas' house. They take him there and they hold a trial. He starts asking. We read in John 18 the trial and sometimes this has been confusing to me. That I've not understood exactly what happens. Well, but it makes more sense as if I studied it. It goes on and it talks about the trial that's happening down in verse 19. The high priest, that's Annas, then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine, so he's concerned about two things, okay? He's concerned about numbers of followers. That makes sense because they're fearful of the crowds. And he asks about the doctrine. That makes sense because if they're going to catch Jesus to hang him on something, they've got to hang him on something that's going to be okay. Does he have a lot of people that's causing revolution? What does he believe? Because the Jews are all about the belief system. By the way, does Annas, who is the controlling power behind the Sanhedrin, any of, have any of the Sanhedrinists, those 70 who sit in council, have any of them been caught up with Jesus? There's two of them that we know about. Do you remember? Nicodemus, Joseph of yes those two because remember in John 11 when they say we got to kill him somebody stands up for Jesus and says you know, his doctrine isn't bad and they say are you one of his followers as well so Annas is concerned about this his goal is to get a guilty verdict so in order to get a death sentence passed he's got to find out okay we've got to have reason to put in record why we have a death sentence so at the time they couldn't do it but they have to go to the Romans they need to figure out a case before Pontius Pilate that is going to get Jesus convicted by the Romans. So he asked Jesus about these two areas because okay, the Romans would be concerned if there's a revolution taking place the Sanhedrinists are going to be concerned about doctrine. The Romans could care less. The bottom line is if they come in and say he's committed blasphemy the Romans are going to say who cares? Because in the Roman world everybody has his own God's. Okay, so they got to come up with a good political reason and sell it. The point that you and I need to keep in mind, according to Jew, Jew, Jewish jurisprudence, boy that's tough. Okay, watch what, watch what Jesus responds. When he is asked about this, look at his response in verse 20. I spake what? I spake openly. I taught in the synagogues and in the temple. By the way, who's in charge of the synagogue and temple in Jerusalem? Annas, this is your domain. I taught here whether the Jews always resort. And in secret, I didn't say anything. In other words, if you want to know what I believe, yeah, yeah, seriously, everybody in the county knows what I've said. There's records. They've been texting it to everybody. You know, there's there's plenty of room. Why do you ask me? Ask them which heard me what I have said. Behold, they know what I said. What is he getting at? You can't ask me to testify against myself. If you want to have people testify, you get your two or three witnesses and you've got plenty of witnesses. Don't ask me. Ask the witnesses according to your own laws. Okay, so Jesus is rebuking the high priest and basically saying you're breaking the law. You who are in charge of the Supreme Court, you aren't following your own rules. That's his basic gist of what he's going on. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by hit him with the palm of his hand. You dare answer the high priest this way? Because Jesus was rebuking the high priest. And Jesus answers, if I have spoken evil, bear witness but if well, why do you hit me? What has he just said to him? You've broken your law not only in asking me to testify, but you've broken your law by hitting me, practicing violence. So Jesus is being very pointed and being very legal at this point and making it very clear okay, that he's not being disrespectful to the office, he is being pointed to those who are office holders who are violating their own rules. Okay? And so he's pointing out that this trial is it's an illegal trial. Okay. So you're in an illegal situation. you got a choice. You can keep on saying this is illegal, this is illegal, this is illegal and they probably, they don't care. They're going to do it. So then what do you do? Yeah. Why does Jesus become so silent? There's no point. There's absolutely no point. It's not that he's guilty. It's what they're doing is just wrong. What they're doing. And so his silence is condemning who? Them. Okay, so this goes on. Jesus Jesus basically just put the whole system on trial and he's bested Annas in this mini interview. He's got smacked for it. So Annas... Does verse 24. Anna sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, okay? And so he's going to send him to round number two, and we read about round number two back in Matthew 26. Jump down there. Now that's where Matthew picks up and says, here's what happens. And right now keep track of our time. We're in the early morning hour. Let's just throw some hours out there. We're at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. That, they, that he's at Annas' house. Now he goes just down the street to Caiaphas's house. Caius Caiaphas is the current high priest, and so by this time, look what the passage says. This is important in the sequence. It says, they, in verse 57, they led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders are now what? They are assembled. So he's gathering a group of people. I didn't put it up on the wall, but in capital cases... In the capital case, they had to have a minimum of 23 judges in order to do a capital case. And so, in, in a non capital case, you had to have three. They would be your judge and jury. In capital cases by Jewish jurisprudence You had to have 23. Annas does a trial, a mini trial interrogation in his house. That's illegal. Doesn't have the people. Annas has a number of people already gathered. How many? We don't know. But we know they need at least 23 to conduct a trial. Annas is the sitting high priest. And it says that they have these people and it goes on it says in verse 59, now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to, for what reason? What does it say in your Bible? Okay, this isn't a trial to find out the truth. This is a trial to condemn. Okay, we, we understand that. They found no witnesses. Yea, though many, What? false witnesses came, yet they found none. At the last came two false witnesses, and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God to build it up in three days. And the high priest said, answerest thou nothing? What is it which you have witnessed? Jesus held his peace. Here's, here's what we got, okay? okay, okay this, is, this is the place, Caiaphas' home, is where Peter's going to do his denial. The goal of this trial is to convict Jesus. They are not open to the truth. They bribe, according to Mark 14, they bribe the false witnesses. They're paying blood money. So the account is, and it says in Mark 14, that the witnesses don't agree with each other. What have we said by Jewish jurisprudence? When the witnesses don't agree, what should happen? It's, it's done. The case is over. Okay, And so they conclude, they, they accuse him of destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And even in this, it says in Mark that they don't agree. And so Jesus is being accused of, and and from their point of view, if you harm the physical temple, that would be upsetting to them. And so they are just upset. He demands now. He demands, Caiaphas demands, verse 62, that Jesus give some type of answer. Jesus doesn't have to give an answer. Oh, oh, by the way, in a Jewish trial for capital punishment, this is the way it had to work. First of all, You hear from the witness to defend himself. Then you hear the accusers. What are they doing in this order? Totally opposite, once again. They're violating their own rules. And so they say, Jesus, answer. Okay? And so it's all done wrong. Jesus doesn't answer. We read the passage that basically it says Jesus held his peace and he doesn't say anything at this point. And that's the reason because it's ludicrous. What they're doing is wrong. Okay? They've already heard. They're, they're asking him to, to um, you know, claim himself guilty. And then he asked the more pointed question. And he says to Jesus, he said, but I, I ask you, I beg you, I, I adjure you, I command you, tell us whether or not you be the Messiah. Then Jesus answered, verse 64, he said, you have said, nevertheless I say unto you, I want you to understand Jewish idioms. Jewish idioms, the way they say things, may not translate real well to the English. In this case when they said, are you the Christ, the Son of God, this time Jesus answers, you have said. It's a Jewish idiom that says basically what you're saying is correct. That's what it means. In fact, in Mark writing to the Romans who don't have that idiom, he makes it very clear, Mark makes it very clear, Jesus answers, I am. I am. So when he says, you have said, that is a way of saying what you're saying is correct. And in Mark he's saying very clearly Jesus answered and agreed to it. I am the Messiah. So Jesus only answer in this trial is, I'm Messiah. And then he goes on, and by the way, you shall see the Son of Man in the day of judgment. He's going to come and guess who's going to be judging then? Look what he makes comment. He says, I say, hereafter, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. In other words, you guys better be careful of this trial because you are going to, yeah, you're going to answer for what you're doing right here. Your you know, payday someday is coming to you guys. And so Jesus is making comment. Caiaphas doesn't hear the second part. He just heard Jesus say, I am Messiah. And he goes into his rant and his rave that he rents his clothes. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of any witnesses? Now we have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They all answer, he is guilty of Okay. They made. Then it says, they spit in his face, they buffeted him, others smote him with the palms of their hands, and they said, tell us who hit you. Tell us who hit you. Prophesy unto us. You know, if you're so powerful. And so then they act, and their response is they condemn him to death. The problem with this court is they condemn him to death, but they have no... (laughs) They, They can't do it. They can't do it. They can't put somebody to death. And they have to go to the Romans and, come on, folk. Does Pilate care if somebody blasphemes God? Uh, let Let me just give you, I won't get to it fully today. Pilate could care less about blaspheming God. Pilate himself marched into this town, and when he marched into this town, he had banners with the image of Caesar on them. Caesar as God he had them put up all across the ramparts of, the, uh, of, of Antonio's fortress. Antonio's fortress looked down into the temple. So when the Jews came to worship, when the new governor came into town, the day that they came and they worshiped, they look up above their own, their own walls, they see the Roman walls covered with icons. The Jews went crazy. Oh, I need to add this to you. The previous Roman governors would not do that. They they gave in to the Jews. They They would not irritate the Jews. Pilate thought the previous governors were wimps. And he thought that they gave in and kowtowed to the Jews and that's why there was always unrest. Somebody needed to control these Jews with an iron fist. So when Pilate comes in, he's going to be the iron fist and make the Jews Listen, because he could care less about their religious beliefs and thought that when the Romans, they allow the religious beliefs of the Jews to infiltrate public policy, that's showing weakness on the part of the Romans. So Pilate did several things. We'll look at it in two weeks. He did several things just to show, I'm a Roman, you're a Jew we're in charge and I don't care about your religious system. With that in mind, he could care less if they come and say, he's committing blasphemy. That's not his his case. In fact, Pilate says that religion, in one of his writings that we have, he says religion is the equivalent to superstitions. He was a non-religious man. He didn't care. In fact, when he answers Jesus, when Jesus says, I've come to tell the truth, Pilate cynically says, What is truth? In his mind, truth is power, and so when they're they're going to go to Pilate and they're going to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, they got to do better than that. They got to come up with something better. But this is the best they've got. And so they start striking him. And by the way, this goes on until daybreak. There's a reason that it has to go on until daybreak. And we find out about it that what happens is they have to wait until daybreak. And the passages say, in the morning when it was dawn, that they gather together and they vote. Do you know why? Why do they do their official vote after dawn? I've already told you. It's illegal to conduct a trial at night. Because, the re- and this is written in Jewish, in Jewish law. At night, what do people typically get or do? What do, what do you like at night? You're tired. You're not clear headed. That's why it was illegal to do a capital case after dark. Because after dark people are Tired. They're not thinking clearly. And so, in order to follow their own rules, they wait until daylight and they do the official vote. Okay? Because now it's legal, because we waited. Oh, by the way, we just forgot that we held two trials during the night. We beaten the prisoner. We made him accuse himself. Uh, we held it in private residences. We first presented the case against him before the defense. And, um, you know, we've broken our own rules, but but we're going to follow our law by voting in the morning hours. Corrupt, 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 corrupt. And what does Jesus do? He could have called 10,000, 12,000 legions of angels, but what does he do? He submits. Why? This must be done. So it's an amazing situation, okay? And by the way, just to add, here are some of those other tidbits of information and how they worked, okay? We've already mentioned several of them. 23 judges has to be in the daylight. They could not do a trial on a Friday because it has to be consecutive days, and so they're illegal by doing it on this Friday. They could only try it in the daylight hours we've mentioned. The defendants had to be warned about perjuring themselves as well as the witnesses. None of that's done. He's never given his morale and a right, so to speak. Um, A defendant could never be asked to testify against himself. If there's contradictions, contradictions, they'd be released. Cases were never to be heard in private residences. Bribery of a witness was wrong, and the case was to be thrown out. As well, it's illegal to ever abuse, hit a prisoner until it's part of his punishment. They were never, and this is interesting because there's no time frame. In their writings, they say, we are never to try a case in haste because it would corrupt the proceedings. Do you get the impression they're trying to hurry up with Jesus? Okay, this is all about speed. They were not to prejudge the case, but hear the evidence. And the irony is, where they hold in Caiaphas's court, it is called the Hall of Justice in, Jewish, in their Jewish society. This is their Hall of Justice. It is their Supreme Court building, and they're corrupting all of their own laws, the irony of this whole thing is absolutely amazing. Oh, by the way, in the meantime peter 's down and downstairs. The trial 's going on up here and Jesus in the courts, uh, the, the inner, the courtyard is down there. Peter's down there and we all know what happens with Peter. He comes with John because John had, can get into the area because John's family knows somebody who works in the house of Caiaphas and so John gets a little bit further into the house to find out what's going on and remember there's a lot of people coming and going because now they're getting the whole Sanhedrin together and they all have to be there by dawn so they can vote. And so Jesus, so Peter's down in the courtyard and you all know what happens. Peter is approached, and all the passages talk about it, that it says in verse 69, Peter sat without the palace, a damsel says, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, You know, part of this story, understand that Jesus had warned Peter about this, but Peter is going to become vulnerable. Can I ask you a question? Why? Why has Peter become so vulnerable, though he's been told just hours before, be careful, you're going to fall. You're going to deny me. No, I won't. No, I won't. Why is he so vulnerable though he's been warned? several reasons I think of, but go ahead. Somebody. Okay, he didn't pray. I didn't put that down, but that's probably the critical one. What else? His pride. Do you think, do you think he was a little bit overconfident? Yeah. Anything else? What's that? Fear. Okay. I put down these, and I should have put prayer. You guys, that, that was the, probably the most impacting one. His overconfidence. He's now apart from other believers. Do we, do we become more vulnerable when we're by ourselves? And he puts himself where? Jesus has told him, I'll meet you in Galilee. He hangs around here. He's here and he is putting himself amongst adversaries. Puts himself in a bad, bad position. So that makes it, but uh, I mean, seriously, when you get in a crowd and the crowd is anti-Christian, is it harder to stand for Christ sometimes? when there's the pressure. And so he's got himself there, and basically the story goes this way. The girl asks him, you were with Jesus. The first question that's thrown out here, she's asking him for a negative answer. It's the way it is stated, the expectation is, is basically like this. It's like, you weren't with Jesus, were you? Well that implies he's supposed to say, no I wasn't. It makes it easy for the first denial. And so uh, Peter responds, I didn't know him. And then another maiden or the same maiden, we're not sure exactly what it says more pointedly, this is one of them. I recognize him. This is one of them. Peter denies it again. No, I wasn't. And he pulls away from the crowd. And the crowd comes after him and they say, we recognize you. You're a Galilean. And one of them says, your speech gives you away." Okay? Do certain regions in our country, you can tell where they are from because of the way they say their words? Yeah. These Galileans, he says, you got that accent. And so Peter's response is when it says he swore, that doesn't mean like today. He, you swear. Y'all, you know, blankety blank, I wasn't. That's not the idea. He made an oath. A vow before God. So he's really, Peter's really sincere. He said, y'all, you know, on, y'all. You know, on the, y'all, you know, my hands upon the Bible, I tell you, I didn't know Jesus at all. That's pretty serious denial when he's that, at that point. This is then, this is probably, probably, we're guessing that you're going from Caiaphas's house to the dawn gathering of the whole Sanhedrin. Somewhere in this transition of across the courtyard um, somewhere you know, next door however it's laid out Jesus is crossing he looks at Peter when Peter just made the third denial the cock crows for the third time and Peter he just melts he just melts. He looks. He sees Jesus and whew, it says he went out and wept bitterly and so that's the that denial that happens and it's just as Jesus had warned it's exactly as everything, it's, and you know what's amazing? As insistent as he was, I'll never deny him, he was insistent in his denial. Isn't that ironic how the Bible portrays that? I'll never deny you, though everybody else just absolutely adamant he's absolutely adamant in his denial. And so you have just some conclusions. Be careful of the settings you put yourself in. Be very, very careful. Do not succumb to the pressures of the moment. Remain loyal to your master. Realize the pain of the consequence of backsliding is not worth giving in to the temptation is just not worth it. Christ knows what we do, when we do it, at any time. Remain bold in declaring your faith at all times. Even if you're outnumbered, you're challenged. Those are real challenging thoughts for us, to just not get caught up with denying at any moment, any time. Next week what we're going to do is we have our annual business meeting, so we'll in two weeks we'll pick up and talk more about the trials. Until then, I hope that this has been helpful, give you a little bit of your understanding of what happens to Christ. Let's get ready for worship.